Welcome to the Outsider Theory Podcast, where we explore the mutations of theories outside of the authorized spaces of intellectual life, as well as the ever-alluring figure of the outsider. If you're interested in this project, please subscribe to the podcast and follow my work at OutsiderTheory.com and at OutsiderTheory on Twitter. I'm here today with Angela Nagel. Angela will need no introduction probably to many of you, but she's the author of Kill All Normies and of essays in many other publications, including Unheard, The Lamp, American Affairs, and many others. So Angela's work has, has been... Um, influential on me for for a good while now, um, and it relates to many themes covered on outsider theory. And perhaps most importantly, and you know, one thing we'll, we'll be focusing on today is she's one of the first people to examine in depth how the right has assumed the mantle of the counterculture and embraced countercultural values like subversion and transgression. So that's something I've written about recently, both on the outsider theory site and, and elsewhere. And um, I wanted to start out by, we're, we're a little bit, uh, you know, it, because of the churn of the news cycle, it feels feels already like a long time ago, but we're, we're maybe 10 days out as, as I'm recording this from the um, Capitol riot or insurrection or whatever, coup or whatever you prefer to call it. And I thought it, uh, obviously, when it was happening, I immediately thought of Angela's work, um, you know, partly because it had this clearly carnivalesque kind of countercultural aesthetic quality, obviously the, the sort of shaman and <laughs> sort of strange figures who appeared. Um, and so that obviously uh, made me think back to Kill All Normies. And um, another interesting feature was the presence of, um, you know, uh, music icons like Ariel Pink and John Mass, um, controversially. And, you know, in many ways, sort of countercultural stars of recent decades, um, but in some sense, um, aligning themselves with this um, right wing movement. And um, obviously also just some of the, the details about like the, the woman who was kit, the one woman who was um, shot by the cops turns out to have been like living in a polycule. I believe, and um, the the QAnon shaman so-called was demanding organic food in prison. <laughs> so there are all these like weird sort of cultural signifiers that are coming out of this that are so um, you know perfectly representative of this whole phenomenon. So I'm just curious to get your take on all of that and how it kind of relates to what you were writing about four or five years ago and how you've seen that evolve and what what this moment represents to you. Yeah. Um... That that is so true. Actually, the the um, the I actually saw um, Ariel Pink on Tucker Carlson. I think uh, yesterday. Yeah. Uh, uh, and yeah, and and then you know you see things like the dead Kennedys like retweeting the FBI. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, uh, yeah oh, it's so sad to see all these uh, punk bands from the seventies and stuff. Um, just saying like, um, you know, like Hillary Clinton should have been president or something like that, you know, <laughs> yeah. but um yeah, no, that is very true about the the people uh, storming the Capitol. And, you know, I also thought um, 
you know, the guy with his feet on Nancy Pelosi's desk and then saying that he afterwards that, he, you know, he stole her mail and everything like that. I mean, it was, uh, yeah, I mean, it's very hard to imagine. No, it's actually totally impossible to imagine, uh, even though like there have been loads of like riots that have taken place that have been uh, on the political left. They, I don't think they would have been quite like that, you know? Right. Um, yeah. And, and it was Karnfalesque and kind of like, uh, um, countercultural in that sense. Um, I remember thinking, uh, at the time, uh, what, whatever it would have been 2016, 27, early 2017, it, um, that, there would be this kind of tension between the traditionalist aspect of at least the ideology mm-hmm. um, and then this countercultural aspect, which is like, uh, you know, just um, breaking all taboos and stuff like that. Um, and then I thought when I remember when like the big scandal that ended Milo Yiannopoulos's career happened, I thought, oh, this is kind of like a, this is sort of what's happened here basically right like that in a sense like on the one hand he was sort of arguing for all of these arguing sort of against forms of like sexual and cultural degeneracy while also being an embodiment of it himself in in lots of ways um but but I mean, while that is an interesting um you know and it's sort of inevitable anyway right because there's not like a there's no, for younger people in particular, there's no real lived experience of a traditional society. So it's always going to be LARPing in some sense. Um, and so it feels more authentic to the time um, as well to kind of, you know, and it's also more in the spirit of, of Trumpism, right? Because uh, like he's not a conservative in any sense, really. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, but and also because you're, you know, if you're like a person who's going to storm the Capitol, <laughs> and you, you know, you you're just like uh, at that point you're kind of totally outside of any kind of you're totally outside of like respectable society in any sense, right? You're not, you don't get any of your information or your ideas or news from uh, any official sources and you know you're even completely hostile to those um you you can't possibly participate in any um existing kind of politics of like respectability in any way you know so at that point you may as well just go crazy and like do the costume and you know uh start like stealing nancy pelosi's stuff and aoc's shoes and you know yeah yeah yeah, no, it's it. Uh, it almost makes me think of the Merry Pranksters or something like that. Just, yeah, um, this this kind of trickster culture of, and you know, again, that it's it's interesting that that, as you documented, sort of was incubated online in in this kind of um, topsy turvy, um, you know, and, and you know, sort of uh, spirit, right, of of the of 4chan and other sites, and uh, yeah. And how you had, you you know, I mean, something as a slight aside, something that interests me about your work is that it it really comes at this kind of pivotal moment in sort of how tech is viewed by um, by the uh, sort of liberal mainstream. 
Mm. It, it, it shifts from this largely celebratory kind of view of its political possibilities in the Obama era to this incredibly negative and censorious view. Mm. It's interesting the way that you're, you know, part of what you're critiquing is that kind of celebratory spirit of the, the Obama era where they were kind of overlooking how how like deranged and yeah yeah and how you know perverse and um and harmful actually a lot of what was going on was and then in some ways they then switched to a moment like right around the time your book was published they kind of switched to being so hyper focused on that that they they kind of lost all perspective in the opposite sense (laughs) yeah that's absolutely true um yeah because I remember you know the kind of internet like you know the the internet utopianism was very much a product of the the kind of clinton era and you know um was so tied up in you know an entire um that that whole political project but particularly the idea of that came from the kind of countercultural origins of the early like Silicon Valley figures as well, which was kind of that the internet was going to be a kind of like samizdat, like the internet was going to, there would be no more dictators in the world because of the internet. And um, the only politics they could possibly imagine. And they, you know, it's funny to go back and read the stuff from the nineties because they said this totally earnestly. Wired magazine published this stuff all the time, but also political leaders, everyone like was kind of more or less repeating this idea that dictatorship would be impossible in the age of the internet. Yeah. The only politics that could possibly come nat- that would spring naturally from the internet would be um, liberationist, we'll say, maybe not strictly libertarian, but um, it would be liberationist. And, um, and also they, all these kind of ideas like, we wouldn't have economic crashes anymore. <laughs> that was one of the things that was amazing that people said in the, in the, you know, the new economy kind of sage in the nineties, just an, an, an extraordinary thing you would think to say, because it's, it's so likely that it will be proved wrong at some point, but, um, <laughs> uh, but well, yeah. Like, well, as soon as they're saying that, you know, that you should start being careful about where you put your money. Or You'll, yeah, exactly. And then of course the, the bubble burst just a few years later, but, um, uh, but yeah, that, that was kind of the, the whole idea that they had of the internet and that pretty much continued and it had its last big peak around the Arab Spring and the politics of the Arab Spring and Occupy as well, which was always represented with a hashtag, you know. Yeah. Um, and that was probably like its last big peak. And then, then as you say, like by the time, um, so, I, so I was kind of reading all of that stuff because I, I had been writing about this, like just in academic stuff for, for quite a few years. So everything that there was to read at the time that I was thinking about this was completely utopian. And all of it was that kind of hacker stuff, very libertarian. Yeah. Um, you know, hackers were going to be like the new vanguard of politics, kind of. Um, mm-hmm. And and it just did not. And I and then I was actually looking at what was online, like, and I was thinking, there's such a disconnect here because clearly, what's developing, like, it, at the time that I was writing, for example, the only people who were writing about 4chan mm-hmm. were 
very much theorizing it in this totally utopian way. So that even when, and I was thinking, are you looking at the same thing as me? Because (laughs) I'm seeing like the really disturbing, like torturous, like images and like, you know, the most disturbing things I've ever seen in my life. Mm -hmm. But the only people who are writing about this in, in academia, which is of course, like such an incredibly conformist place um, were, if you didn't know the subject of what they're actually looking at, you would think that it was just like a cool kind of a forum where people chat and, and kind of, you know, like it was a little bit, um, a little bit taboo breaking, but in some unspecified way. (laughs) And then like, you know, so then uh, like ironically edgy politics came out of that as well, or, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. So, yeah, so, so that was the context of it. I was basically trying to figure out why is that? Why is it that in this incredibly PC environment of academia, the only people who are writing about this are all representing it as if it's some kind of um, just fun libertarian little like forum, yeah. uh, and not not just that, but the whole thing they were representing in that way because hacker politics and very cyber utopian politics were that was fashionable at the time yeah. um and so nobody was writing about the really dark side of what was going on even even things like you know the enormous psychological uh toll that the online world has taken on everyone uh yeah. the really poisonous um psychologically poisonous aspect to it the way in which it has really uh, I mean, I know there's some people who would still disagree with me about this, but I think really intellectually diminished all of us mm-hmm. um, and morally diminished all of us in a way like that people are completely lacking in empathy um, yeah. uh, in a way that would have just been completely unimaginable before. Yeah. And there hasn't even really been any attempt to uh, stand back and really think about that. Mm-hmm you know that 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 has occurred you know um i find myself all the time thinking uh when i see people behaving in a way that is just so horrifying you think you know you always have this experience i'm almost exhausted by it now but the first couple of times i i thought you know you you feel like wow you can't do that like that's so wrong like you can't sure surely there's a but then you realize like this this invisible barrier that was there before to stop people behaving in insanely cruel ways yeah that there was never really any barrier there and in fact anyone can just break it at any time and there's actually really no consequences yeah um yeah and that, that's kind of the horrible world so so i i was kind of trying to get um i was all of this was sinking in at the time when i was looking at what was in front of me and the only books that i could find the only in particular academics the only writers I could find were all talking about this as if it was just absolutely great. And all that was going to happen is like democracy everywhere and so yeah. on. Yeah. It's, it's incredible. And I mean, I, I, um, I, my own path w- towards writing about kind of contemporary tech issues was the, f- the first thing that got me sort of riled up or, you know, motivated enough to um, write, you know, essentially about Silicon Valley was, um, this kind of strange moment, uh, again, during the Obama administration, where there was kind of a parallel thing where they thought that 
suddenly the internet was going to make education free and available to everybody. Yeah. And, I mean, it's, it's interesting to think about now because obviously like suddenly everybody is like forced to be teaching and learning virtually on zoom and you know, the results, I mean, we'll, we'll have to wait and see but overall look pretty terrible, but so, yeah. you know, in this kind of shock doctrine by which that, um, that plan, which they had 10 years ago, you know, which various universities and, you know, people in the Obama administration and people in foundations and many others like wanted to make everybody learn virtually. So mm. I've gotten that, <laughs> which, which is an interesting, but, but the thing that I was furious about, I guess, when I started seeing this was just the, again, this, um, uh, just this kind of naive utopianism, which was also tied to these kind of sinister interests. Um, yeah. You know, the, these kind of sinister, you know, the profit motive of these companies, as well as um, just these, um, you know, ways that, um, you know, it, it was clearly, it was clear to me that it, w- it was unquestionably a way of weakening labor in, in the context of education. Mm. And so that was part of why people were into it, right? It was, it would make it easier to casualize teachers and so on. So, mm. you know, it, it's, it's weird to um, just reflect on how the whole um, broad conversation about, about technology and the internet has evolved. Um, yeah. And, and everyone being their own boss was another yeah, idea that yeah. they loved, you know, that the internet would allow everyone to be their own boss. Yeah. Um, and I guess they imagined, um, you know, pe- people, everyone being a publisher rather than delivering food or, you know, right. only fans or something <laughs> like that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And I mean that the whole sort of gig economy and um, I mean the, the way that all of these, you know, the, these utopian prognostications have become these dystopian realities is, yeah, um, is really quite striking, but, but I mean, it, it is interesting the way that kind of going back to the capital riot and, you know, if you think back to something you wrote about, you know, the, the kind of c- celebration of anonymous, which, mm. I mean, I, I kind of went back and looked at that recently for something I wrote, which it was interesting because you see a certain um, similar rhetoric in the kind of, you know, within the kind of liberal, you know, democratic coalition world of the media about TikTok recently, where like these TikTok like teens are kind of, you know, the K-pop stands and so on. I mean, mm. presented as these kind of, you know, these kind of merry prankster um, types who are, you know, um, hyper politically engaged and are, you know, doing a new kind of politics. Like you, you saw this when they supposedly like bought up all the tickets to the Trump rally and then nobody went, but it, it, it was all very vague, but there was a lot of hype about how, oh, this is the new politics of like these, these web savvy teenagers who are, you know playing by different rules. And so it, it struck me as very similar to kind of the, the celebration of anonymous that you saw mm. in that world. Um, so, so it does kind of come back, right? There are people still want to hold on to this dream that like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Centralized kind of fun, subversive politics. And yeah. Kind of dismissed it. And some, like when something like TikTok comes around, you see certain people kind of, you know, in the kind of liberal press seizing on that as like, wait, you know, the internet can still be good. It can still. Yeah. 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 Good political stuff. (laughs) Yeah. Even AOC in a way, right. Like they're always saying Mm -hmm. how great it is that she like just films herself talking. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, 
you know, that the dream does still live on, even even alongside the sort of, you know, dystopian and, and very kind of... Yeah, 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 but it, it, it's true, but it is just a dream, right? Because it never really takes off. Like, it's never really authentic. You can tell that they're try- they're trying to make... They really desperately want the ideology of the regime to be linked to youth culture, you know, <laughs> and it just won't work. It just won't happen. Yeah. So they have to do it in this really awkward way. But the thing is, like, if it was awkward before, it's going to be even more awkward now because they'll have yeah. shut down like half of the population will be shut out of the Internet. And yeah. so... Um, so articles about yeah when they try to do that it's just going to be totally implausible yeah um absolutely and i mean it's but it's interesting that you know kind of as per your um thesis you know that the the sort of allure of kind of countercultural subversion is so great that you know even times like feels like it, it you know it'll write these kind of um celebratory accounts of like tiktok teenagers or whatever just because that yeah. allows it to attach some kind of that that allure mm. countercultural subversion but you know so so everybody kind of wants a piece of that still mm. Mm. i mean it, it struck me in terms of the capital riot or whatever we want to call it that um you know, as you were saying, it, it, it kind of culminated in these weird kind of trivial gestures, um, right, of just like putting their feet up on the desk and stealing. Yeah. And, I mean, it, which, which struck me as like a good example of just the, the sort of political dead end of, of a politics that, that is, um, you know, that, that is heavily focused on that, that, that it, it, doesn't, it doesn't really have any sense of um, you know, if, if subversion, if kind of symbolic subversion becomes the primary end of the politics, then you just end up with these. And, you know, it's it's interesting that, you know, I would say these guys are kind of the successors of like the anonymous kind of, you know, pranksters of an earlier time. But and they, mm. they managed to seemingly achieve something remarkable, right, which was actually flood into the capital en masse. Mm. They were in there. It was like, you know, all they could do was just kind of pose for you know essentially pose for the media take selfies and like, mm. do these weird kind of subversive gestures yeah um so it, i mean so it's it's weird that you know it's like in some ways it was very anticlimactic i mean people keep bringing the thing i've been like hammering away of it is like you know people who want to magnify the the danger it represented you know they keep bringing up the body count but like a couple of the people apparently just dropped dead yeah 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 <laughs> It's well, so actually, I, I saw I saw some of the footage where people yeah. were really, really squeezed in, yeah, uh, to these narrow hallways where basically they had maybe twenty people back pushing them yeah. forward, and then the police pushing in the other direction. So when I saw that, I thought, well, actually, I'm not surprised that people yeah. just dropped dead actually in the middle of or had heart attacks or something in the middle of that because. Uh, I probably would have had a heart attack in the middle of that. Um, but yeah, it like doesn't help that they were boomers football. as well. <laughs> Those like 1980s football incidents in, in the UK where, you know, the these like throngs sort of, you know, people would die from like suffocation from, mm. um, you know, people like trying to throng into football stadiums or whatever. Yeah. But, yeah. It's um. so, it, but the point is, you know, the body count was like, you know, four out of five were like, people who were participating yeah 
So it was like a pretty, I mean, it's, I mean, part of what's interesting to me is like how ambiguous it is. You know, some people, Mm. this was like a great triumph for the far right. Others saying, no, it's just kind of a pathetic failure um, and sort of everything in between. But um, it did strike me just the way that the, you know, they achieved this pretty remarkable, um, at least in symbolic terms, um, you know, uh, coup in the sense of a sort of publicity coup, let's say, but, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, they didn't seem to quite know what to do with it. Um, and, you know, you, you see people ring up, oh, like, here are the sinister plans some of them had. You know, they had zip ties and things like that. But, you know, it, there was certainly no, it, it doesn't appear that there was any very well organized um, plan to execute. So mm. for any individuals involved were believed they were going to do, you know, it, it, it does seem like, it, it, you know, it's, it's interesting in relation to the, the kind of, um, decentralized you know the what was it the the disgust became a network kind of thing right yeah 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 in some sense you know that if it it does seem like this was essentially a kind of decentralized operation and there was no overall plan and basically it just kind of fizzled out in these trivial gestures at least that's the way that i yeah that's true and and um you know it's funny too actually thinking of julian assange now because at that time, like I said, when I was writing, when everything was pro-hacker and liberationist and the internet is going to fix everything, um, he was still kind of seen as a heroic figure. Yeah. And then, of course, I mean, I think, as I remember it, the thing that really damaged him in the first place was the like sexual allegations or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, because once they, and then you have me too, that, which comes along later. So it's like, you know, the, the internet also created the conditions for, um, this like witch hunting, like culture where any political figure can be destroyed really easily. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and you know, all of that stuff as well. Yeah. Um, which nobody saw coming because everyone was being so utopian about it at the time. But also, I mean, in the case of the uh, of Occupy Wall Street, like, um, you know, again, everyone, it was really celebrated in the media, actually, in many ways. It's like, you know, young people, they're using this hashtag that is popping up all over the world. And, yeah. you know, in, 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 um, and it's kind of instantaneously organized and all that kind of stuff. The, actually, this was all repeated with the Hong Kong stuff too, wasn't it? Um, but it felt very warmed up. <laughs> it felt very like, yeah, they were just warming up something that had already kind of come and gone and, you know, not really amounted to, to anything really. Yeah. Um, and in fact, you know, another thing to come out of the Occupy period was basically woke culture, you know, Mm -hmm. like the the progressive stack and everything, Mm -hmm. uh, which effectively made, you know, for all the, anyone can organize a protest now because the internet stuff, um, it also made like political activity intolerable and like uh, just torturous to be around or, you know, it, it meant that everyone um, was at the mercy of everyone else not to, cancel them for something or other and it gave enormous space to really tyrannical poisonous personalities um yeah and so it ruined everything basically i mean 
it, it defined like that, the fact that the, the direction that Occupy went with the progressive stack stuff just defined all of left-wing politics for the entire time that has passed since actually. Um, and, and the internet undoubtedly enabled that because of the fact that the potential for humiliating others yeah. um, for some moral crime is just enormous and it's cost-free. Right. Um, yeah. And even like with something, I, I was also looking at how, you know, it was one of these cases recently where some girl like outed her mother for having gone to one of these Trump rallies. Right. Um, and people often give the example of usually the Soviet Union uh, or something like that, some kind of, um, or Orwell or something, you know. Um, but it is quite a terrifying that that is, has been normalized now, you know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, and it's funny too, because um, I see people saying, you know, there's this whole argument about free speech going on and the free speech and the internet and so on. And um, now, of course, the left are on the very anti-free speech side, typically. Um, and then some are kind of saying, well, you know, if you if you just clamp down on free speech on your enemies, then it will have negative consequences for you, for yourself in the future. Um, but I think that's funny because it's just not true. <laughs> you know, and like, what do you do? And that's actually not true. Yeah. Other than anti-war people, right, who are going to get all kinds of sinister things happening online, you know, in terms of mysterious, anonymous figures, you know, um, just like destroying their life and their reputation and stuff like that. Like, that definitely does happen to people who stray into foreign policy stuff but if you're just a leftist who doesn't really care that much about that there isn't really anything you're you're ever going to say that is going to um that is going to in any way contradict or cause a problem for um any uh like tech ceo mm -hmm. you know i mean okay you'll probably say something like you know you want to smash capitalism or something but the tech ceos know that that's not going to happen so you may as well not be saying any, saying it at all um and in fact the role that you're actually playing is um to to help um to to be the trojan horse for stuff that the tech sector wants to do you know mm -hmm. in so many ways um uh, and that that's really the role that that, that they play you know like the, the none of none of the um none of the capitalist class today are remotely afraid that they are going to actually make good on any of their economic promises even really really minor social democratic mm -hmm. reforms they know that they know that they they play this role as a kind of trojan horse for things that would otherwise be unacceptable. You know, yeah. it's funny. I even saw like some of the, some of the kind of liberal um, writers that leftists tend not to like because they're just so firmly in the kind of liberal establishment camp yeah. responded to the, to the riot or the peaceful protests mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, by, by in the Capitol by saying, um, by saying, uh, yeah, you know, these people are just scum basically. And they're, mm. uh, uh, they 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 
look like peasants and they um they should just be they should just be smashed by the police basically is kind of like more or less what liberals were saying yeah. and i just thought you know the system is so lucky to have the left because mm-hmm. they are so much more sophisticated they would never say that not yeah. because they don't think it's true they probably do think it's true but they know that you don't say that out loud yeah what you have to say is actually these people are petty bourgeois because here's an example of this guy who owns a car dealership or something. Yeah. Um, you know, there's just so much more clever. So, I mean, I, I used to think that like the role that the left played in kind of ideological terms was like thwarted in some way or that it was like, um, you know, I, I had criticisms, whereas now I just think this the actually existing left in in America today and in America's immediate sphere of influence um, really is um, it's an unbroken chain from the, from the almost entirely CIA created like Mm -hmm. uh, stuff in the sixties. And basically it's not changed at all since then. And every, the, the, the purpose that it serves is simply to, um, to kind basically to really really aggressively force through an otherwise socially unacceptable idea mm-hmm. through the elites but particularly the younger up and coming yeah. uh, elite aspirant class sure because once you once you do a scorched earth you you force everyone in that class to accept a slogan or something like that mm-hmm. like abolishing the police or open borders or whatever it might be then you've basically won at that point because um, because then the entire rest of the elite has to kind of get on board with that. Yeah. Um, or, or of course they've are, they're already on board with it, but they need, they need this kind of incredibly aggressive um, force that has some kind of youthful energy to it. Yeah. And that can uh, be viral and that, can enforce a slogan in an absolute way absolutely every single person now you it's like you wake up one morning and every single person now must say the slogan yeah. that they, they have decided upon uh, or else you will be cut out of the the ladder will be taken from under you um if you are in any kind of like um um like a middle-class profession or whatever, or, or a managerial profession, um, or you have any aspirations whatsoever, basically to be upwardly mobile. Um, yeah. That's basically how it works, you know? Um, and if they didn't have that, like if they didn't have that, they'd just be left with Hillary Clinton type of people, right? right? Who are just totally hateable, um, can't help but express the regime kind of ideology in a very naked way. Yeah. Um, that is that nobody would ever accept. Right. Well, and, you know, now we have basically a, <laughs> we have a, you know, sort of empty, sh- literal, you know, sort of empty suit, you know, just kind of somebody who's clearly not really with it anymore. Um, yeah. He's kind of the perfect culmination of that, you know, and who's been bad on so many fronts, right? <laughs> like the, the left was supposed to care about, right? Um, yeah. You know, terrible on, I mean, including the stuff that's most, you know, fashionable today, right? Cr- criminal justice, right? He's mm-hmm. absolutely terrible on all that, um, you know, has a long record. But the point is, you know, he, 
you know, somebody who is not going to produce enthusiasm in anyone and neither is his running mate who, you know, was really unsuccessful as a presidential candidate. So, yeah, so it is kind of this, um, well, again, it kind of goes back to this whole, like everybody wants a piece of some kind of countercultural energy Mm. that they can kind of weaponize or try to. And um, yeah, it's like you have this totally sclerotic sort of moribund, um, you know, just kind of neoliberal blob that, um, that, that everybody hates, right? But, yeah. Um, and, and everybody has hated for, um, you know, for the past 10 years. I mean, not everybody, but, you know, has, has lost its legitimacy, you know, sort of lost the mandate of heaven or whatever. Mm. Um, you know, Obama was kind of supposed to be the, the, the figure that re-injected legitimacy into it, and he did in a way. Um, but, you know, I think at a cost and, um, mm-hmm. and then, you know, handing over the reins to Hillary was a pretty terrible idea right? <laughs> in terms of um, her just representing so much that people found reprehensible about that. But, but now, you know, the, the ride, the, yeah, as I think, as you're saying, like the, the way that the left has emerged from obscurity in the past 10 years functionally the main thing that's done is created new uh, a new kind of energetic constituency for keeping the sort of blob in power Mm. despite its lack of legitimacy yeah and and so it you know and it can attach itself to these kind of supposedly subversive or countercultural energies that you know that it that it lacks um and and thereby kind of gain some energy to keep going yeah. I mean, the only thing that in terms of the the um, the whole like the politics of Q and yeah. all that stuff um, and the way that you were saying, like they they managed to storm the Capitol and then just wa- and then just kind of wandered around when once they got there um, because there was no set of demands or anything. I mean, that's what people said about Occupy Wall Street right. as well, wasn't it? Like, yeah, that they 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 they. they um, kind of almost insisted on not having a set of demands. Um, but at the same time, like I kind of almost feel like that particular thing was such an act of absolute madness. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like that the, the only people who would do something as mad as that sort of had to, in a way, as I said, just be totally outside of any kind of politics, respectable politics of any kind. Um, but but also to be motivated by um, you know a sense of like absolute evil, yeah. Uh, and it's sure. an absolute evil that, unlike pretty much anything else I can think of, because it's a because it's a conspiracy uh, within the elites, um, and it's essentially like uh, not disprovable, you know, in a way. Um, but also the more that you try to suppress it, the more evidence the adherents see of its truth. Yeah. Um, and so I don't know how they're ever going to get a handle on it, but, mm-hmm. and, and then in terms of the actual outcome of that event, um, you know, like that's a, that's a real final bell for empire kind of moment, isn't it? Like when, <laughs> when you have like the peasants storming the capital, that's like, uh, you know, every, every geopolitical enemy of America is, is, is uh, looking at this and thinking, wow, they're much weaker than we thought, you know? 
um and yeah it's it's um and they can only and 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 then of course like the entire um moral and ideological sort of framework that has held up america particularly since the cold war uh is now going to not make sense because they can't have any illusion of freedom really anymore you know um they have to completely shut everything down um you know uh, even even like we were talking about the 90s and the kind of internet utopianism and how all these kind of clintonites and even foreign policy people loved talking about the internet as samizdat and bringing down dictatorships and so on but now even like that has totally fallen apart because you can't be shutting effectively shutting off the internet in a political manner at home mm-hmm. while do while complaining about other countries doing it abroad you know um the whole basis for intervening in other countries which is that they want to spread democracy and um um freedom and so on that's just completely crumbled i mean i i think that everyone kind of knew before that it was bogus but now it's not going to now it's not it can just never have even the ring of truth to it ever again now you know they 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 really do have to enforce um this kind of um you know uh, the rule of this one party basically it's not really a rule of one party right because both rule kind of very similarly actually um but yeah they they have to suppress like half the population basically yeah, yeah. no it's um i think it's uh in, you know in terms of all that you know the, the sort of long death of that cyber utopian uh, fantasy you know we're we're kind of seeing the the final phases of it i think um you know, I, I, I would say it, it'll, it'll probably be interesting to see what happens in terms of, you know, both in terms of a kind of reversion, right, where suddenly more kind of private communities like that become more, more important to the operation of the, the whole thing. Mm. Um, and I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm curious to see what happens. And I'm, I'm sort of hesitant to make too many predictions. But, but yeah, it's, I mean, it's, the um the sort of mask off quality of the past couple weeks is mm-hmm. astonishing and i mean i've i've been observing it in terms of i guess like the thing that interested me last year that i wrote a bit about was um so the covid related the attempt to clamp down on covid conspiracy theories i think was was an interesting moment because you had on one hand the you know states going to these extreme measures and sort of cracking down on certain liberties and so on in order to prevent the spread of the virus. And then in parallel with that, you had the idea that there was this all this misinformation that was going to aid the spread of the virus, right? So you had the sort of literal virality of COVID and then the kind of figurative virality of, you know, these theories and so on, kind of as parallel problems. And it did seem to me that the, the way, and this is just, a, I'm, I'm sort of trying to work on writing something about this actually, but it seems to me there's sort of a, um, a way that the, the, the sudden ability to impose these extreme restrictions um, on, you know, freedom of movement and assembly and things like that mm. um, was in some way ideologically helpful in terms of making it easier for them to just go fully mask off in terms of cracking down on, 
on online content. You know, I mean, mm. I remember this thing of like people were messing around on Twitter with like, if you just posted like 5G COVID, like immediately the tweet got flagged. Mm. That was like sometime back in the summer, I think. And then, you know, that was before they started flagging all of Trump's tweets. And, you know, it did seem to kind of prepare the ground for that. So I, I'm, I'm kind of interested in just how this kind of, um, you know, th- this kind of safetyism or securitization of the internet that's, that's happening in a very extreme and obvious way now is a kind of, um, is a kind of spinoff of or a, a parallel development to what's been happening in, in, in response to the virus, you know, regardless of what you think of it, um, you know, and, and in that way, it's interestingly, you know, following the China precedent in a sense, right? Because really the lockdowns were, you know, basically other countries decided to do what China had done, right? Um, mm. So if our, if our internet is also <laughs> kind of going in the, in the um, Chinese direction, there's sort of a whole interesting complex there. Yeah, I mean, sometimes I think they obviously know, they, they obviously believe that all of this like COVID stuff and and um, conspiracy world and Q and all this kind of stuff that um, that there is actually something very dangerous in that mm-hmm. for for them. Otherwise, they wouldn't be do- yeah. they wouldn't be doing so much harm to their own legitimizing kind of you know what I mean as a system of thought and yeah. and and like their own companies um and uh they they wouldn't be just breaking the whole thing in this way unless somebody somewhere had like worked out what is going to happen mm-hmm. and figured out <laughs> there's like there's going to be a revolution or something like that or you know there's just going to be i don't know like maybe loads of domestic terrorism on a scale that we have never seen or something um yeah. but for, but they wouldn't they really wouldn't be doing this unless now i suppose the if i was invested in any of those conspiracies i would be saying well they're shutting it down because it's true yeah um but you know then you have like um i saw there's some british thing called talk radio and it's a very it looks like the kind of thing my parents would watch in the morning. It's just like a totally standard looking talk show, political talk show. And they got taken off of YouTube. Um, And I think the reason was because they were discussing COVID in a, you know, I think they had like Peter Hitchens on or something Mm -hmm. who's a columnist. So, (laughs) I mean, are they going to get his column taken away? I don't, like, I can't imagine that. It's, it's in a way, it's easier actually to. Um, you, you, it's funny because it's almost like now it, it used to be that people wanted to express themselves online uh, because the official channels of doing so were restrictive. Yeah, but now you're almost safer yeah. being having some old, like you know, like a an old fashioned. Uh, position in a newspaper or something then you you probably are going to end up having more freedom than you will online ultimately Mm -hmm. sure and i mean in another context like academia the this case of this professor who like had a um discussion in uh class about like the the conflicting evidence about like the efficacy of masks Mm. you know it's like evidently what happened in class was fine and then what happened was somebody complained about it on twitter and then Mm. brought the so yeah, I mean the the sort of 
crowdsourced policing quality of it is like, I mean, you have on, you have sort of the two levels of it, right? On one hand, you have the companies themselves increasingly doing this, this top-down policing. And then you have, although in some cases that's like, because you have these crazy people who spend all their time like drawing up sort of kill lists of people who they want to get banned and then like bombarding the, you know, bombarding Twitter with complaints or whatever, Mm. you know, so the, but, you know, to me, like what's, what's interesting in part is the, the way the, the sort of, um, you know, in, in some ways, the, the desire to the demand to censor and the demand for these companies to do that was itself an expression of the, the sort of democratic quality of the platforms, because it was something that and that, you know, it's, it's more ambiguous than that. But it was something that was heavily demanded of them, right? Mm-hmm. And I mean, not necessarily in a, de- you know, because often it was by, you know, influential people, and that's probably what mattered more than, and also people who work for those companies. But, you know, it is interesting that you had, for years, you had people on these platforms demanding that the platforms ban certain content, right? Mm. And the platforms were seemingly a bit reluctant, you know, pretty reluctant for a while. Um, so it's, it's interesting how it's, how that itself was sort of, a, um, something that actually gathered its impetus from users. Mm. Um, and that, so in other words, that sort of tyrannical, like censorious quality is not, is not just because you have these illegitimate authorities, um, censoring and cracking down. It's also because you have these mobs of frenzied people trying to get people banned and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I I wonder too what it's going to be like, you know, if they really do um, just get rid of everyone who's even like just a just a pro-Trump type of person, you know, uh, if they're banning people on that level. Um, I I do wonder what I mean. I what I, what would be interesting to see is let's say if the the right are basically just banished from the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, and and conspiracy world as well, which is not necessarily really right or left thing. Um, so then, who will be left is basically liberals and the radical left. Yeah. Um, and I wonder if there, uh, if 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 things will like escalate or de-escalate. You know what I mean? Like, I wonder if the presence of right wingers is like makes them more makes them respond in a way that is more extreme or whether you know the when they are absent if they will if the if the kind of really extreme cultural revolution stuff will de-escalate in some way i don't know yeah no that's um that'll be interesting i i want to um wrap up shortly but i wanted to talk about the the so my post about theory cells in trump world because i and i think it Mm. does tie in here um in terms of the you know the um the right because it's being excluded or censored in some ways it has to kind of or i mean it doesn't have to but but it it is going to gravitate towards these kinds of institution these kinds of radical institutional critique that you find in this historically kind of left-leaning body of theory. Mm. Um, so, you know, that that's sort of what I was trying to get at here. I mean, the thing that I saw that was connected with Kill All Normies was just 
that, you know, I mean, still these figures, you know, like, I don't know, Foucault or the Frankfurt School are often seen on the right as these kinds of, you know, subversive, dangerous figures who kind of undermined the traditional family or, um, you know, who have kind of, um, you know, poisoned institutions with their theories and so on. But, um, you know, at the same time, there's this larger cultural phenomenon that, you know, of, of all of these kinds of transgressive and anti-authoritarian um, kind of, you know, 68 and post-68 types of um, attitude and thinking that, that have sort of been embraced on, on various levels by um, figures on the right and sort of factions within the right. So, um, so that was kind of the connection I saw with your work. Um, I think more broadly, you know, in relation to what we were just talking about, you know, a lot of what brings together this, um, you know, these various theorists is that they're, you know, they're trying to critique, you know, engage in a radical critique of kind of dominant institutions Mm. and um, think about how power operates through these kinds of decentralized, um, you know, um, diffuse operations that, that are, often disguised in these kind of um, seemingly neutral or objective procedures and these kind of bureaucratic structures. So that's, you know, that's kind of what I see as bringing together the kind of um, Frankfurt school um, body of thinking with the, the, the sort of French post-structuralist thinkers, especially Foucault. So I mean, that's kind of why, based on what we were just discussing, that, you know, we're, we're seeing an even greater, you know, the, the right on some level has, has posited itself as being kind of institutionally excommunicated or excluded in various ways for years, right, including in universities and in the media and so on. But, um, you know, so, and we are seeing in some ways that, that becoming uh, more and more true. And so, you know, my, my thesis was sort of the, the, that even though generally the attitudes on the right to this kind of material are pretty negative, you know, it does create a kind of opening for a certain, um, for a certain um, affinity that, that might develop and that, that we've seen certain, let's say at this point, relatively marginal examples of that I try to document, but that, that I think there might be more and more appreciation for, for this kind of stuff. So I, I'm curious what your thoughts are on that and, I don't know how it. Yeah, no, it's it's a really really good piece, and um, and it um, it's so true that the people who hate theory the most are the people who will probably need it the most um, uh, now because I don't really know how else. I mean, um, yeah, because they are outside the institutions, and also. you know, there is always this question of like, there is a kind of mystery in, uh, of how exactly power is operating at any given time. Mm-hmm. Um, and also everything has been so, you know, to work out what exactly is being said, what what is intended, um, what the intention is of the person that the, of the thing they want to actually achieve um, through what they're saying as against what they, what they are literally saying. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, the kind of um, the, you know, at any given time, 
you could sit and think for hours about just like untangling any given conversation, almost anything that is said now. It's it's very, it's very like I, I often describe it as like a dementing quality of like uh, contemporary politics and yeah. discourse that you you need to be able to think um, in new ways to kind of actually unravel mm-hmm. um, what is what is being said at any given time, you know, and, um, and, and also because the power, um, like I remember listening to a conservative one time complaining about Foucault was saying, Oh, it's such a terrible thing to think that the world is just this vicious, like exchange of power, like relative uh, levels of power. Well, if you are on the receiving end of that, like you, then it doesn't seem like such a strange idea, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, if you are on the wrong end of that, it doesn't seem like such a strange idea. And you see how, um, yeah, I mean, I think I remember saying, this is not theory, but I think I remember saying in Kill Normies, or at least one of the things I wrote around that time that, you know, the, that the right had at that point, like totally taken like um, the, the Chomsky and like view of the media um and and then you had a funny situation where sort of um progressives and often like you know people who think of themselves as radical leftists ended up being the defenders of the media um against this kind of very very cynical view of it Mm -hmm. um and how it operates as an institution whose role ultimately is to um protect the powerful right um but yeah, I mean, I do think there's probably more of a, I think, I think you will see a lot more. I, I, you, you took maybe like three or four examples, as I recall, but mm-hmm. I think you will see a lot more uh, of that way of thinking, you know, I mean, even if you think of Christopher Lash, who we uh, often talk about who, you know, is sort of um, has followers on the right and left and so on. Mm-hmm. I remember like w- when I started like telling people to read him, um that one of the things that more right-leaning people didn't like is that he um is that he's a freudian yeah you know and they were just so hostile to this idea of, but i was i was saying like but look at how conservative mm-hmm. like look at how implicitly conservative the mm-hmm. thesis of civilization and its discontents actually is you know it, it, He's making a case for repression, basically, you know, as a civilizational necessity. Yeah. Um, sure. But, but I, I do think that that will, that um, knee jerk sort of anti theory thing will probably go away, actually. And maybe there'll be an entirely new body of work, like a whole new um, set of theorists, you know, who will be. Um, you know, a few years ago, I would have said on the right, but right now, I mean, politics is so off kilter that um, it 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 won't necessarily be of the right, but it will be outside of, um, I guess, like uh, outside of progressive, um, mm-hmm. progressive like acceptable ideas or something like that. I mean, I I just do include at this point the left in. I I just throw them into the same pot as um, as the the liberals or neoliberals because, as I said, like they're not going to be banned. Like nothing they say 
everything they say results in them getting promoted in the elite institutions. Nothing they say will ever result in them being censored or losing their jobs. And, you know, the only example they can ever give to counter this is always an anti-war person. Yeah, right. right, Sure. You know, that's the only exception. Yeah. Yeah. um, Actually, I had a a theory related joke about this, which is... um, so Lacan has this joke of um, it's uh, my the joke is my fiance is never late for an appointment because the moment she is late for an appointment she is no longer my fiance. <laughs> so my version of this was yeah I know exactly where you're going with that yeah free speech you know fr- restriction of free speech will never affect the left because as soon as restriction of free speech affects you you are no longer on the left <laughs> exactly yeah 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 <laughs> so it's you know it, it is really. Um, you know, I think I think it's it's shown itself to be a world where you you know it partly involves just being adaptable to whatever the kind of accept the the twists and turns of sort of acceptable opinion are right and and because it's all that as we talked about before kind of categorizing people you know it it there's a lot of excommunication and um, you know as soon as you say something that that makes you no longer legitimate because you're not part of the group anymore and. Yeah, absolutely. And and something that will be taboo in a year from now isn't today, you know, right. but but like you say, if you are if you are not uh on board with enforcing the taboo that does not yet exist but will exist in yeah. a year from now, <laughs> like yeah. you you only get to be like the 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 category of leftist only has meaning in the sense that if you are a leftist you are for um, that which is being enforced um, <laughs> ideologically mm-hmm. at any given time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, it's um, so, and, and I mean, I think kind of going back to what you were saying, um, you know, it, I, I try to think about this stuff in terms of kind of media ecology and just how, you know, when you have these sort of relative, you know, what are at least initially kind of relatively open platforms, you know, mm. these kind of spontaneous forms of kind of control and sorting and so on spring up. And often they, they spring up kind of, you know, democratically in a sense. They're, they're sort of, they spontaneously emerge out of the, the sort of system. And um, so I think, you know, the, the sort of, in terms of that, it's like, you know, it, it ultimately has less to do with ideology than with a certain kind of disposition towards the current you know, the, the way the power is kind of arranged through the sort of media system, you know, that, that your, your politics are in a sense, like what position you take in relation to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny, actually, the first time this started to occur to me was many years ago. Um, I saw this uh, academic who was like just the ultimate system uh, academic, just like ultra conformist um, you know, probably thought of himself as like a radical leftist, but only because he's like on the vanguard of enforcing, um, you know, just like regime ideology. Um, And, um, but I remember him saying, uh, this was back in the days when I was on Facebook and he said something like, you know, I don't even teach Chomsky anymore because frankly, you know, the, the, the people who, part these ideas now about the media manufacturing consent are all just fascists (laughs) you know or like they're all just reactionary and they don't they're just bad people basically was what more or less what he was saying um and I just thought wow that's really interesting because probably until a few until very recently before this person said that 
it, you know, that it would have been, that would have been just like a, a totally standard view um, among leftists, you know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I just thought it's so interesting how they would be willing to just throw out this like thing that was very much part of their canon Mm -hmm. uh, just because bad people have started thinking this as well, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I mean, it's, it's interesting also like in terms of um, the evolution of the, I mean, I, I think of it partly in, in terms of the evolution of like the blogist, the sort of aughts blogosphere mm. you had, I mean, Hey, you had these guys who were pretty much neocons like uh, Ezra Klein yeah, the Vox guys, right, for example, mm. who, who just kind of, um, you know, managed to really capitalize off of the blogosphere, but were really not, you know, they they were really not very distinct from the Democrats at all, right? But what's interesting is that they started these sites like Vox that I think are, you know, culturally very, I guess, quote unquote, left, right? Mm. Um but so have kind of created this new media ecosystem, which which I think partly accounts for why. And then places like the New York Times have kind of tried to be more like, you know, Vox or places like that, right? Mm. And tried to be very, you know, tried to become more sort of new media and at least sort of culturally progressive and so on. Mm. And I mean, I think that's partly how, you know, the, the, the there's a sense of cultural affinity with, um, with the sort of... Um, both the legacy media, which has sort of taken on some of the qualities of the sort of new post-blogosphere digital media. And, you know, there's just like, they've managed to create a sense of cultural affinity where people don't, don't intuitively understand the idea, the sort of basic Chomskyan idea that, you know, if you're on the left, you should be highly suspicious of these kinds of, <laughs> these kinds of sort of ideological apparatuses because, um, you know, it doesn't feel intuitively um, um, concer um, concerning anymore because they feel so culturally in tune with, mm. you know, the sort of demographic base of the, the whole sort of left such as exists. Mm. Right. Because they, they just throw out all the, the right cultural signifiers. Right. That make people feel like, okay, these must, these guys must be on our side. Um, yeah. And ultimately those are more important to the contemporary yeah. left, you know, like, like I often say, you know, you, you can be in a, any organization, the DSA or whatever it might be. And uh, any, any socialist organization and be um, any, anything from a social Democrat to a, Stalinist, you know, to an anarchist yeah. uh, on economic questions, but it's only the cultural ones that you would get immediately booted out for e being even slightly off message on. Sure, which which tells you what is actually the point of the whole thing, right? Like, I saw. I mean, this is very a very cynical view to take, but like, you know, I've been watching a little bit of the 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 Jimmy Dore fallout, you know, and the arguments that they're having over that. But I I just think, yeah, like this was the plan. Like, you're not getting any of the economic promises. That's not <laughs> that's not happening. You're only getting the cultural ones. Yeah. No, and that's, um, and, you know, and it's weird because I remember that being a kind of critique of the right that, that sort of, they would like throw out mm. sort of culture war red meat and, mm. and then what they would deliver was like, and then, you know, to extend that, you could say that's equally true of the Trump administration, but you know, what you'd get was, uh, you know, a marginal tax rate decrease or whatever. 
Mm. So, you know, um, that it, it's, it's interesting to see how that plays out. Um, but, you know, I think the most, the thing that hasn't changed, I would say is that, you know, I mean, when I was first kind of getting into Marxism and so on, I mean, it was clear to me that nobody was, you know, that, that you were kind of an outsider. I mean, certainly in the nineties, as a teenager, it was like, yeah, Marxism, you know, you were clearly an outsider at that time. Um, I think that sort of changed post-Occupy that you could, you could be sort of respectable and um, do some degree of, you know, talk, talk the Marxist talk, but, um, Mm -hmm. but what hasn't changed, you know, what, so what was clear to me when I was first interested in this stuff was that, you know, they didn't need to censor or ban any of this because it just, what the problem with it or the, the main obstacle it faced was not any of that. It was just that um, it had no large constituency and, you know, in the sense, I would, I would say more now, um, it had no, and has no large sort of working class constituency, right? The point at mm. which those ideas would be <clears throat> perhaps threatening is the point at which they're actually the basis of a sort of mass movement rather than a sort of cultural, rather than a sort of cultural elite movement <laughs> that sort of uses some of that rhetoric as a wedge against like people who are somewhat better off yeah. within the elite. Um, so, yeah, you know, I was I was even thinking in terms of like uh, you know now we all have to be aware of what constitutes uh, you know like um, incitement or something, right? Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, looking at some of the definitions, I was thinking, isn't isn't it incitement of violence if you say that you're a revolutionary of right. any kind, like even a a leftist one like can you be arrested for that i don't know like obviously you wouldn't be right because of what we've already said but yeah technically you that's actually what you're saying like you know yeah. it's mm-hmm. and, and it just shows the absurdity of it because people are just going around saying calling themselves revolutionaries mm-hmm. and, and like <laughs> right. but but actually if you do something that destabilizes the empire in any way suddenly you're reminded that this isn't actually kids play if you even say that the mm-hmm. FBI could come to your house you know like that's like the whole um that's yeah. you know that that's what that's when you use the word revolutionary and actually means something you know yeah. Right. Yeah, it's, um, it's interesting. So uh, another thing, I mean, another thing I talked about in that post was um, this kind of this idea that there was a kind of long march to the institutions, Mm. sort of post 68. And that, you know, these sort of revolutionary ideologies were to some extent sort of neutralized by their, um, their incorporation into sort of academic professionalism. Mm that that you could sort of i mean you know that you could literally just like be a marxist as your kind of scholarly niche mm. so you know that on some obvious level wasn't threatening because it just meant that you know some economics department needed to hire a marxist so they would hire you or something like that i mean it, it just and you know for a long time that's that's a great deal of what leftism was in this country right it was really just kind of what um what was discussed in in the context of some academic departments. Um, Mm. And, you know, it's so, but I guess what I'm getting at is, you know, that's, that's kind of another angle of how these sort of seemingly anti-institutional ideologies, right. Um, Whether it's, you know, in some sense, a sort of um, 
the you know some version of the Chomskyan like critique of the mainstream media sort of feeds into the blogosphere, and then the blogosphere just gets absorbed into the media itself, right? Mm. So that the Chomskyan critique is in that sense kind of neutralized. Mm. And then you know something similar happens with various kinds of revolutionary or avant-garde sort of theories that get incorporated into sort of academic professionalism. Mm. And, and in some ways are very congenial to it, I think. Like that's, that's the part that I find interesting, right? That I, I think, you know, on some level, um, a lot of these theories were, were very um, well suited to the university actually in the period in which it was heavily sort of corporatizing um, and becoming, and, you know, academic careers were becoming much more competitive mm. and <clears throat> much more, you know, hyper-professionalized that I think that there was a kind of strange congeniality um, in part because it, it kind of offer, it could offer a way of thinking about power that was actually what you were sort of in the process of realizing in your career, <laughs> mm. <laughs> that you were sort of engaged in these kind of micro strategies of power mm. as an intellect. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I guess what, what's interesting to me is how that, you know, th- there is a kind of popularization of, some of these theories, which I mean, I think is sort of exaggerated by the the kind of IDW types who like to emphasize this, but you know, <laughs> that, that it was the basis of the kind of you know that in the say like the the sort of Tumblr left that you mm-hmm. wrote about, um, you know, it it sort of clearly adopts a lot of these sort of academic these these ideas that were incubated in academic settings and then kind of turns them loose on the internet, and um, you know that there's some way as well that. <clears throat> just this kind of performative, this, the, the, the conjunction be- between a kind of performative performativity and like the notion that everything is a kind of power play or that everything you're doing is, is engaging in some kind of strategy of domination or something, mm. like, you know, that seems very um, resonant with just like how, and kind of going back to something you were talking about before, but just like how these platforms have conditioned people to behave. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, um, it's interesting too, that, um, you know, a very, very common thing you hear among graduate students and people like that uh, is that, um, like, all they learned in college was basically how to manipulate the system, like, and how to say the things that they know will result in a, a grade that they need. Um, and, and that there was, like, almost nothing else really to learn um, from the whole experience. And it really does feel very much like, you know, we have this, these institutions that used to be there to create the next generation of elites, yeah. uh, which then massively expanded in this totally unmanageable way and were totally corrupted at the same time. And basically what they're producing is like an entire cohort of people, a very large group of people, elite aspirant people, who have basically just been trained in lying basically they they've been trained in understanding how understanding that there is this kind of almost impenetrable like system of power that exists in an institution and yeah. you simply have to learn how to manipulate it correctly that's yeah. like you know as everyone is just going around doing that all day that's their entire class basically what they do and so they've like they've trained them to be able to do that mm-hmm. to to um 
to, to exist in a, in a bureaucracy and to do all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But then, yeah, they've also, they've also taken the people who are forced to do or, or who are engaged in doing that have also taken on this really dark view of the world, uh, you know, as being just like the, this naked sort of power game. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that conjunction of, I mean, so it, it's, a, you know, I wrote critically of this new book, Cynical Theories, um, but I think there is a, you know, cynicism is kind of a useful term here. Um, mm. But what's interesting for me is the way that it kind of intersects with and isn't necessarily um, incompatible with a kind of idealism or, you know, gen- genuinely believing that doing good mm. at the same time being highly cynical in other respects. Mm. I think that's, you know, those are kind of both happening. And just, you know, when you see the way that certain people behave online, you know, in, in incredibly vicious and, and um, cruel ways, um, you know, I don't doubt that, that those people actually believe that they're um, sort of doing the Lord's work in some sense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It's it's interesting. I mean, it's somewhat, somewhat tangential, but, you know, reading that, for this blog post, like I had read it a while ago, the Breitbart memoir. Mm. Um, it's, it, it's, it's a fascinating uh, document um, just about him. Have you read that? No. Yeah. It's, it's pretty, pretty interesting, but I mean, I, I it's, it's definitely like, you know, it's, it, as you wrote about the, the sort of Gramscian um, right, you know, that, that book seems like it's kind of the, the sort of watershed of that whole, that whole worldview. But mm-hmm. um, it's interesting the way he talks about his discovery of sort of, of critical theory in college and, you know, how he then determines that it is kind of this, I mean, what's weird is, you know, his, his account of like his discovery is itself kind of infused by some kind of um, sense of total domination or something like that, that you might hear about, you might read about in like Marcuse, right? But, but what mm. it, the, the, the thing that is exercising total domination, according to him, is like cultural Marxism, right? So yeah, kind of using the, the language and sensibility of it to talk about what he claims is its influence, um, mm. you know, is a pretty, I mean, and it's a pretty ludicrous um, claim on one level. Like, I think, you know, that that's like one thing that tends to be pretty exaggerated, but um, I mean, especially because the the Frankfurt School people, other than Marcuse, who, you know, I guess we could talk about speculation about his um, CIA links and so on. Mm-hmm. But, <laughs> but, you know, the other Frankfurt School figures, I mean, you brought up Lash um, and something I was, something I was reading about recently was like, you know, Lash actually reviewed a, a, a number of books by various Frankfurt school figures, but he was like heavily influenced by the kind of cultural conservatism of, mm. of Horkheimer and Adorno mm, mm. Um, and particularly Horkheimer. So that's kind of an interesting, um, interesting path of influence, but, mm. you know, but, but it's just, it's interesting to find Breitbart, you know, kind of discuss, you know, being taught this stuff in a similar manner to what you were just describing. Right. Um, you know, being taught this stuff and realizing in some sense that it's, it provides some kind of secret to like how power is exercised. Mm. Um, And then the way that he, you know, the the way that he sort of explicitly works that out is very conspiratorial, but it still does have this kind of sense, this, this sensibility that's clearly informed by those theories. Right. And then his whole project is this, this sort of attempt to create a, you know, a new, um, a sort of new media ecosystem that will, 
provide some sort of alternative. Um, but anyway, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting book in relation to all this stuff. Um, and it's also like kind of reading it, it's kind of unclear to me how much of it is myth making versus how much of it is stuff he literally believes. Mm-hmm. You know, because this whole program is so clearly about myth making and kind of creating these viral narratives that will take hold. Mm. So that's, that's an interesting one. Um, so perhaps we should wrap up. We've been going for a good while. Um, any, do you have any, um, any final thoughts about themes we've discussed and or plugs of things you've read recently or perhaps things you're, you've written or are writing um, that people should check out? Um, well, the last thing I wrote was totally unrelated to anything we're really talking about, which was just on um, this um, uh, abolish the family kind yeah. of stuff. Um, and that was in the lamp. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, I'll likely keep, I, I, Unheard is probably the place where you'll find me most mm-hmm. from now on. Cool. And um, any final thoughts on this whole uh, not really other than just other than just I think it's a very interesting um avenue that you're going down with this and I think like um you know there's definitely the potential for like a new um body of work of theory you know to to explain um because it's obvious that uh, while you can draw on these like institutional critiques and so on uh, it's obvious that things have changed in terms of um, you know the 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 I guess who is in power and things like that Um, or at least how how the powerful look or something like that you know like in terms of um, you know it's not uh, it's not the the um, the, the same kind of people that 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 were being kind of discussed in those texts, but that there is a lot of potential for, and I don't think it's really been done by anyone um, that well yet because it's so new. Um, but yeah, just trying to theorize power in in um, uh, circumstances where all of these things have been turned on their heads, like like I was saying with you know leftist professors banning Chomsky or like not allowing Chomsky anymore mm-hmm. um, and 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 so on, you know that like they're actually going to be increasingly re- possibly rejecting, um, you know, a theory that seems too conspiratorial, right? Because conspiracies are now the new um, no-no. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I mean, in terms of this project, you know, it has a few different angles, but one of them is sort of thinking about how conspiracy theory and sort of academic theories have overlapped and interacted. Mm. So that's, that's kind of another another thing I hope to get to in the future, um, because there's definitely a lot a lot there actually, um, mm. and you know it just relates to this larger question of sort of official knowledge versus these kinds of more marginal um, you know assertions of knowledge, and um, you know that that also relates to the way that institutions and platforms are being increasingly um, regulated and restricted, and that in a sense, expands the range of things that are going to be called conspiracy theories, right? Mm, mm. Because that, you know, was essentially a term invented specifically to police knowledge, right? Mm. Um, that, that it was like literally created so that they could say, if you're asking questions about the JFK assassination, that just means you're a kook or whatever. Mm. <laughs> so, 
I was thinking too about uh, the X Files, which I was a huge mm. fan of. Yeah, many years ago, and I, and and the funny thing is that when I thought of it, I thought immediately of a conspiracy, which is that it was probably created as a show to make FBI agents look look good, you know, or like <laughs> to to launder the image of the FBI. Oh, yeah. Um, because, of course, Mulder was this like wide eyed, like, you know, believer or whatever, like he believed in all these things. And then like Scully was the the rationalist who was like uh, put there to essentially follow him around and, and like um, uh, keep tabs on him. And uh, yeah. And so like and also, she, you know, she she has this like religious belief as well. Um, mm-hmm. which is like a theme that goes through it, like these two kind of forms of belief clash. But yeah, I mean, that was like in the period, I think of like, you know, Waco and all these things. So um, they probably just said, here, we'll throw a bunch of money at this um, show that's going to make uh, the FBI look like, um, you know, they, they, they like they're vo- this is a real vocation that, you know, yeah, uh, uh, an all-consuming moral kind of like vocation. Yeah. Well, um, the final thing, um, if you haven't encountered this, you might be interested in it. Um, This biography came out, I think, last year of this um, sort of writer and sort of proto-Alex Jones radio host named William Cooper. Mm. And he was kind of a big figure in the 90s, um, you know, in the period of Waco and Ruby Ridge and all that. And amazingly, he was actually killed. um, He was killed by the FBI or I can't remember if it was the FBI or ATF, but, you know, feds. Um, mm. He would, you know, in a sort of very Ruby Ridge-like thing. Um, and it happened within a few weeks of, like, after 9-11. So nobody heard about it. Because, <laughs> I mm. mean, it was pretty crazy. It was like a popular, you know, um, radio host who had this program called The Hour of the Time um, that was in many ways a model for Alex Jones and other people after him. And, um, yeah, he was, like, killed um, outside mm. um, by federal agents and like nobody knew about it. But anyway, there's a very good biography of him by um, Mark Jacobson called Pale Horse Rider. And it's really fascinating as um, both kind of going back into the conspiracy culture of that period mm. and, um, you know, how it entered into pop culture in that time. And, you know, it kind of goes back to his involvement in UFO stuff and then kind of how he became disillusioned with the ufo stuff and then how he kind of developed these you know ver- kind of earlier versions of like sort of new world order type stuff um you know really took hold in the 90s but the other fascinating thing about him is that he's hugely influential so his book called um behold a pale horse ended up circulating in prisons a lot and as a result of this he became hugely influential in hip-hop hmm. if you go through hip-hop lyrics He's cited all the time. Um, and so this book actually by Mark Jacobson started because he was, he started noticing all the, cause like he's written about hip hop culture and like he started noticing all these references and that was what got him interested in William Cooper in the first place. Mm. But it's interesting because it's kind of from that X-Files era and it's like a real sort of Mulder-esque guy who was you know, trying, to, not in the FBI, but um, trying to get to the bottom of all this stuff. And, mm. you know, was has had a sort of strange and unusual range of impacts on the culture. Like including all the, I don't know if you, if you followed all the like hip hop Illuminati stuff. 
Yeah, yeah. That kind of comes out of his influence too. Right. As far as I understand it. So it's... That's really interesting. Yeah, so that's a book I recommend to to everyone who may be listening. Um, Pale Horse Rider. Check it out. Um, And I may, I hope to do an episode about about Cooper at some point because he's such a strange and fascinating figure. But Mm. anyway, um, thanks, Angela. It's been a pleasure talking. Yeah, thank you. Perhaps we can have another episode and talk about the X-Files in the future or something. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. Bye. Thank you.